Shabbat Shalom. That's some crazy stuff going on since I've seen you last. Coming up here, as I'm walking up here, I'm, I'm thinking that, um, man, the world was a very different place last time I saw you. And things are moving with such lightning speed right now. And I know probably most of you are aware, but we are at war. Unbelievable war. The forces of darkness are getting stronger and stronger, and they're taking more and more land. And they're taking more and more ground. And so we are living in days right now where you, you got to get serious about your faith. Everything else that you had a concern about, you got to move it to the side and get focused right now. Amen? Last week, we looked at the front part of verse 4 in chapter 13, where the writer says, Marriage is honorable to me, in the Greek. It is, in other words, it is precious. Marriage is holy, it is righteous, it is good, it is God's design. It's a perfect design. But as the writer continues, he's going to take us to the flip side of the coin, and he's going to show us the perverted form of this. He's going to say, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This is the other side of the coin. This is when you take God's design and you totally pervert it. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of perversion in this country today. The fornicators, the adulterers are running amok. And unfortunately, I wish it was just evolved. And of course, I don't wish this upon anything, but I wish it was only upon the world. But this thing has crept into the church. Many, many years ago, I started to recognize I'm getting emails and articles sent to me all over the place of all the immorality that was going on in the church. Pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor being exposed for getting involved with congregants, an adulterous affair. It is ridiculous to see those numbers. If I had a stack of papers, they would reach the ceiling of everything that has happened within the church, all the immorality that's going on in the church. And boy, I'm going to tell you, that's telling of where we're at in this nation right now. Now, I want to pull up the Greek here. For fornicators and adulterers, and and let's look at the latter, adulterers, moichas in the Greek. This is a very, very specific term for this sin, for adultery. In other words, it it is explicitly dealing with the, the covenantal marriage, where you have one spouse, let's just say the wife, goes off and has relations with another man, a third party, outside of this covenantal marriage of her husband. That is moichas, that is adultery. This is the very thing that lotini off, when you go back to the Hebrew and you're looking at, you shall not commit adultery. This is what this is referring to. Whereas the former, the fornicator, is parnas. This is where we get the word pornography. This term is very broad in its spectrum. In other words, you could take all of the sins of sexual immorality, Whatever they be, and there are entire chapters dedicated to this issue in the Torah. And they all come under Parnas. And so including even Moichas. And so here you have the writer bringing any and every sexual immoral sin possible to the table. And he finishes it and says, God will judge. You're a dead man. You embrace this stuff, you're as good as dead. This is a warning. And so, given the fact of the intensity of what the writer has just brought forward, we're going to talk about this topic today. 
what we're going to see is that this particular thing of sexual immorality, it takes precedence above all sins. This sin is very, very unique in its own right. And so what I want to do today is I want to open up by taking you back to the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. See, there was an issue happening in the first century. You had all these Gentiles coming into the faith, confessing this Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. And the Messianic Jews started to break out in controversy because the experts in the Torah were saying, hold on, time out. These Gentiles cannot come into the faith like they have to be circumcised. And then you had other Messianic Jews, such as the apostles, anointed with the Holy Spirit, and said, hold on, time out. They have been circumcised. They've been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. They're receiving the same gift that was given to us, this anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And so they come and they convene to me to put this thing to rest. And what we read in this is the following. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those, and this is James. James is the Nazi. He's the prince of the court. He's the supreme judge, if you will. We should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Isn't that interesting? In all reality, we we have four things listed here. But they can actually be broken down just two things. There's only two things that they're concerned about above all else. They take precedence. Before we talk about any of... I mean, you don't see anything... You don't hear anything about, oh, thou shalt not steal. You don't hear anything about, thou shalt not bear false witness. You don't hear anything about, honor your mother and father. No, none of that. Because before all of that happens, this is what they need to grab hold of. And there's really just two things. It's food laws. You can't eat meat that has been strangled. You can't eat the blood of an animal, and you can't eat meat that's been offered to an idol. That that is one thing. But then you have sexual immorality. And these are the first things that they are commanded to abstain from. Now, the question is, why? Why do these take precedence? What is it about this sin that is so important? That this has to be dealt with first. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Mashiach, Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. In other words, Paul is saying, you cannot mix the holy with the profane. Don't do it. Moving on to verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her. For the two, he says, shall become basar achad, one flesh. Genesis 2.24. And then says this, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. In other words, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't have fellowship with the Lord and have fellowship with the world. Cannot happen. A man cannot serve two masters. He will hate the one, love the other, or he'll despise the one and be loyal to the other. This cannot happen. And then he says this, flee from sexual immorality. There's a saying today in our culture. It's run for your life. Understand something. This is literally what Paul is commissioning these Gentile believers to do in Corinth. Run for your life. It's not something you deliberate on. It's something that you hang around. You pull a Joseph who when Potiphar's wife came on to Joseph, 
You'll know he didn't sit down and say, you know, this is a good time to share the gospel with you. He ran for his life. She wasn't interested in hearing the gospel. She was interested in adultery. She was interested in fornication. And so he fled for his life. But now we're going to get to the point of why this sin takes precedence. And we come and we see every sin that a man does is outside the body. Did you catch that? Every sin, stealing, lying, all that. Every sin is done outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality, what does he do? He sins against his own body. This is the problem. This is why this sin has to take precedence. This is why this sin is so important. With sin against the body, you might say, well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, look at what he says in the next verse. He says this, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? This is the problem. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And notice, it's not just called spirit, the Holy Spirit. Holiness residing within us. God dwelling within us. And you read the Gospel of John. Yeshua makes it very clear that he and his Father will make his home with us. That's the promise. That's why he says, it's good that I go away. I'm going to send the Ruach, the Spirit, to you. And he will dwell within you. It's this radical, born-again believers. See, this is the problem. And then, if you have that Holy Spirit, which you're the temple, and you open the gates of the temple up to let the abomination of desolation into your temple, what do you think is going to happen? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 17, he says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That's the problem. You see why this is so important? This sin takes precedence over everything else. You've got to get rid of the sexual immorality because the Holy Spirit will not stick around. You will sever your relationship from the Lord. Instantaneous, you will sever it. Why did David, it's interesting, you go back to Psalm 51, David has that adulterous um, situation with Bathsheba. Fortunately, he came to his senses and repented. There was hope for him. But you'll notice the one thing that he says that it sticks out to me almost above anything else he says in Psalm 51 when he's pleading his heart for God to forgive him. He says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me because he knew what was in jeopardy. He knew that spirit, that God will not dwell within wickedness. It's not going to happen. So we cannot take this stuff into our temple. And I'm going to tell you something, men and even women, This means pornography. You open the gates of your temple to pornography, to that demonic activity, do not think you're going to walk away and everything's going to be fine and you're going to sit in grace and it's going to be fine. Jesus' grace is going to cover me. It's not going to. You've rejected him. You've allowed the, the Antichrist to come into your temple and inhabit. This is dangerous stuff. And so when you think about What's at stake here? When you know how important that this sin takes precedence over any other sin, be mindful. Because you better believe the enemy's coming for you. He will utilize every arrow in his quiver, every tool that he has to come at you, to get you to engage in sexual immorality. It is absolutely certain that he's going to do this. Now, that being said, I want to take you to the book of Revelation. 
And we're going to look at Yeshua's interaction with the church of Pergamos in chapter 2. This is what we read. And actually, I'm going to do things a little bit different, so don't get confused here. Let me preface what I'm going to do. I'm going to juxtaposition the opening statement with Yeshua's closing statement to the church at Pergamos. And there's a reason I'm going to do this. You'll understand why. But then after that, then we'll go look at the main body of the text. And so let's go there. Revelation 2, verse 12, we read the following. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has this sharp two-edged sword. Now, understand something. This is Yeshua's introduction to the church at Pergamos. This is not a happy little greeting. This is not a greeting you want to hear when Yeshua comes out and he says, listen, my sword is drawn. This is an act of war. This is terrifying. And this is confirmed as we look at, let's juxtaposition this with the closing statement. He says in closing, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So you understand? So there's no question about it. This greeting is terrifying. It's meant to inflict fear and terror. Because then he tells them, listen, I'm coming to you. If you do not repent, if you do not turn, I'm going to take you out. Yeshua is hangry. You know, typically when we talk about Jesus and we talk about him, we relish the grace and we should. But not too often do we talk about his wrath. Not too often do we, do we even consider the fact that he cannot just get angry, but he gets so angry, he's going to take us out. I mean, keep in mind, he's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. These are believers in Jesus. And he comes swinging a heavy stick. This is a threat. And here's what I've come to learn after reading scripture. When the Lord makes a threat, he will make good on that threat. He will make good on his words. And so this is terrifying. Now the question becomes, why? Why is his sword drawn? Why is he angry? Well, let's go to the main body of the text. We read in verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell. Now I have to stop here because this is so powerful. Yeshua says, I know your works. I see everything. Everything that you're doing at Corner Fringe, I see it. Every single individual, I see what you do behind closed doors. The people that you're hanging out with, the immorality you may be embracing, the pornography, he sees it. And so he lets them know he sees. He goes, I know your works, but that's not all he says. He then goes on and says, and where you dwell. Well, that's very significant because what he's saying is, is, I know what you're doing, but I also know your situation. I know your situation where you dwell. And he explains this, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of which Antipas, my faithful martyr, uh, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so here when he says, I know where you dwell, he's saying, I understand you're in the belly of the beast. The Antichrist is strong among you. The spirit of the devil is powerful where you are. He understands this. And then we get to the crux of the matter. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold, what? The doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat uh, things sacrificed to idols and 
to commit sexual immorality. Now, does this sound familiar at all? To eat things sacrificed to idols to commit sexual immorality? We just read it in Acts 15. The very first thing that you have to do before anything else is you got to cleanse the temple so that the Holy Spirit can reside in you. And these are the very sins that have crept in to the church. Should we be surprised? It's where Satan's throne dwells. The spirit of Antichrist is strong there. It is moving forth in what you need. You need to connect these dots. This is exactly what the devil wants to do. This is what he wants to do. He wants to take you out in the worst possible way by things that absolutely make Yeshua angry. He yearns to do it. This is his goal. And so what I want to do is I want to build on this statement. This is just too important, what Yeshua is laying out here. I want to build on this, and I want to take you to look at the story of Balaam. I basically just want to capture some highlights his interaction with the angel of the Lord, his interaction with Balak, who we'll talk about in a second, his interaction with Israel. We're going to look at some of these things, and I'm going to tell you, as we look at these things, you're going to get a greater appreciation for where Yeshua is coming from and greater clarity on this. Now, the story actually begins in Numbers 22. You go back to Numbers 22, Israel is coming into the land of Moab, and they're covering the plains of Moab, we're told. And fear and dread has come over the king of Moab. He's terrified. The people are terrified. He can't win this militarily, even taken adjoining with the, the Midianite kings and the Midianites. They can't take on Israel. They know it. So there's only one answer. We need to call for Balaam. We need to call for this prophet, this seer, Balaam of Beor a man who is considered to be one of the most powerful men in the world. And it's interesting because we don't just have a testimony about Balaam, son of Beor, in the Torah, in Scripture. We have a testimony that's a secular source. The inscription from Dear Allah. This is a completely secular source that talks about Balaam, this seer of the gods, the Elohim. But he doesn't refer to, this is gods in the plural. See, He's tied to all these false gods. He's tied to Ishtar. One of the gods mentioned in this inscription is Ishtar. And what Balak knows, that this man is so powerful that whatever he blesses will be blessed and whatever he curses is going to be cursed. Think about that kind of power. Where he knows militarily they don't stand a chance. The only way to do this, call that one man. Call Balaam, the seer of the gods. He will come and he will curse Israel for us. The only problem is, is when Balak sends delegates to him, what happens is the Lord speaks to Balaam and actually says, you shall not curse the children of Israel. They're blessed. And so Balaam responds to these delegates that Balak sent out and says, I can't, I can't do it. They're blessed. I'm not going to come with you. The Lord hasn't given me permission. And so those delegates go back, and what Balak does is he sends more delegates to come that are more noble than the first. And at that point, they do it again. They say, no, you got to come, you got to do this. And Balaam tells them, well, just stay here tonight. Let me see what God says. Now, here's the thing. we got to start painting an accurate historical context here for you. Balaam, the first time, did not get a vision from Ishtar. 
God, the God of Israel, spoke to him. The second time these delegates come out, he tells them to wait. He's going he's to see what the Lord has to say. He actually tells them, I cannot go beyond the word of the Yahweh, yod hey vav hey. He can't go above what he says, his word. And now that's significant because now we have Balaam, this prophet, this seer of the gods, actually calling Yahweh, the God of Israel, his God. And that he will not go beyond his word. This is, it's, it's, it's almost mystifying to see this. And so all this activity that he's having with the Lord and his confession that the Lord is in fact his God. Well, long story short is the Lord tells him that night, says, hey, if these men call you, go with them. Okay, so the first time, didn't get it. No, these people are blessed. You can't curse them. Balaam doesn't go. He knew that the Lord didn't allow it. But the second time the Lord says, if they call you, then go. Problem, he begins to go on his journey, and all of a sudden his animal starts acting crazy. His donkey, instead of staying on the road, goes into the field. And, and another time it starts going and, and presses up against him and crushes his foot. And another time it just drops down. And Balaam's angry every time something like this happens, which is three times, Balaam starts beating his animal. He beats his donkey. Now here's what Balaam didn't know. The angel of the Lord was standing against him. But Balaam didn't see. He didn't see it. And so his donkey starts talking. This is a crazy story. I mean, no matter how you look at this, this is an absurd story. His donkey starts talking. Why are you beating me? Have I ever been predisposed to do this to you? And his answer is no. And it's at this time we read the following. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. Now I ask you, does that sound familiar? Because this was Yeshua's opening statement to the church at Pergamos, which the main body of the text is all about who? It's Balaam. It's not a coincidence Yeshua is using this imagery. We see it right here. So how does Balaam respond with this angel? And he has his sword drawn. Like any man would, he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. He is terrified of what he's seen. But this gets even more interesting because as we get to verse 32, we read, And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Now, one thing I can tell you right off the bat, when Yeshua comes to the church in Revelation and Pergamos, he's there with his sword drawn because their ways are perverse before him. He's angry. But it's interesting at this point and in this story, and it's been, there's a lot of debate about this. What is it that the Lord's addressing? What, what does he mean by this, that he says, your ways are perverse before me? And here's, here's what's fascinating. When you go to the Aramaic paraphrases, the translations of this very passage, the Targums, Targum Jonathan, it actually tells us what is going on. This is amazing. Look at this. And the angel of the Lord said to him, and we're going to read this exact same verse, but just in the Aramaic. Why hast thou smitten uh, thine donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to withstand thee. And then continuing on. And the donkey fearing saw and turned from the way, it is known before me that thou seekest to go to curse the people a thing that is not pleasing to me. How fascinating is this? 
Because now we get the backdrop of what perversity is happening here. What happened to Balaam as he's going on his way? Now, there's even more of a backdrop. It's thought, the scholars debate that where Balaam lived, the son of Beor, was in Pathor. And that's about a four-month journey from where Balak, the king of Moab, is. And so this is a serious journey. I mean, you're talking some 400 miles. And so this is no small thing. And we're not told at where he's at, how long he's been journeying. But along the way, you can almost kind of get into Balaam's mind. Well, God first did not give me permission to go with them. But the second night when I dreamt, the Lord told me to go with them. And you can almost think in his mind, Balaam riding on his donkey, heading out, that when he gets there, I'm going to fulfill this. And keep in mind, Balak is willing to give him anything. Whatever riches he wants will be Balaam's. Don't think for a moment these thoughts are not inhabiting him and in his heart as he's making his trek to go to the king. This is what's coming. And so here you have this this great nugget of understanding, which, mind you, as we get to the end of the story, will be confirmed. Continuing on in the story, we read this, verse 33. The donkey uh, saw me and turned aside. This is the angel still speaking to Balaam. He turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. This is how angry he is. He was saved by a dumb animal. I mean, this is, this is intense. Verse 34, And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Two things I want to point out here is this statement, I have sinned, and then this statement, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Now, you look at this. Balaam's eyes have been open. Or let's, let's even go back. Put this all together. Number one, God is speaking to Balaam at night in visions, in dreams. And this is, we're told in Numbers 12, this is what the Lord does to the prophets. This is what he does. He communicates to them in visions and dreams. Okay, that's how he speaks. The Lord is speaking to him that way. Not just that, Balaam is calling him the Lord his God, using the tetragrammaton, the sacred name of the God of Israel. He's the Lord my God. Then we see when his eyes are open and he's making his journey, he says, I have sinned. He's making confession before the Lord. And not just that, he says, if it displeases you, I will turn back. In other words, he's saying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is your will? I will do it. Now, you start looking at this, and this is a significant part of this story, understanding this reality, because you look at this, and everything about it seems, man, this guy is a, man, you know, a godly man. He's showing good attributes of repentance and willingness to change and to submit to the will of God. Well, despite Balaam's willingness to turn back, the Lord actually commands him not to. No, continue. Go on your journey. And to make a, a longer story short, over the next couple chapters, what Balaam does is he gets there, and Balak is expecting, hey, now here he comes, the man of the hour, the man of great pomp and, and power. He's going to curse Israel. He's going to take care of this problem. He doesn't do that. He continues to bless Israel. 
He takes up his oracle, which is to say he prophesies the spirit of God anointing him. He starts to prophesy all these amazing prophecies about Israel. And Balak is losing his mind. He goes, I brought you to curse Israel and you're blessing them. And Balaam's response is, what God has blessed is blessed. I can't reverse it. Now think about that statement. I can't reverse it. I don't have the power. You're asking me to do something. And he's this great man of power, but he doesn't have the power to curse Israel because God blessed them. He blessed them. In essence, Israel is untouchable. In essence, Israel is invincible. I wish that were the end of the story. Because as we continue on, we find in chapter 25, verse 1, we read this. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people, as in Israel, began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Quick question. Who's the king of Moab? It's Balak. What does he want? He wants Israel to be cursed. What is he getting right now? Israel is coming into a curse. This is what's happening. How is this even possible? Israel's untouchable. God himself, that there was the spirit of prophecy. It was the Holy Spirit declaring. You can't touch them. They're blessed. I'll tell you how it's possible. Because the Lord tells us in Scripture, 2 Chronicles 15, whoever forsakes the Lord, he will forsake. This is just the reality of it. And so while other people have no power over us, even as believers today, know this, you have the ability to walk away from God. God is not going to hold you back. He's not going to keep you against your own will. And so these men start going to these women at Moab, and they start, the, the whole topic of today, they start engaging in sexual immorality. And I'm going to tell you, sexual morality is a, is a very powerful thing, all right? Extremely deceiving, extremely alluring, extremely deadly. See, my thought is, is as we're reading this, there, at this point, there's no details given. Here you have Israel who's untouchable, you know, sanctified by the Lord. And the next thing we read is that they're going off and committing harlotry, something that's abominable to God, with pagan women. My question is, how did this happen? How did this happen? You need to know. We need to know. Now, right here, we're not given the details, but we are in Scripture. We're told exactly what transpired to help us. It, it fills in all the gap here so that we have some insight and in how this would go, how this would actually unfold. And so what I want to do is I want to fill a little bit of these gaps, and I want to take you to Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3. For the lips of an immoral woman, of an immoral woman, drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Oh, interesting. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, get this. Okay, so Yeshua's got this sharp two-edged sword that he draws to the church at Pergamos. He's ready to kill them for what? For sexual immorality. And here we read about a sharp two-edged sword in the context of someone going forth and committing sexual immorality. Not a coincidence. We just keep seeing this imagery pop up. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. So understand, when we're, when we're trying to understand what happened with Israel, 
How did this take place? You have the women of Moab going forth and pouring forth honey. See, on the front end, it's all honey. In the back end, it's all death. It's hell. Proverbs 6.23, we read this. For the commandment is a lamp and the Torah a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. You starting to see a pattern here over and over again. It's the flattering tongue of a seductress, that honey. I can remember a story several years ago of a couple I know, been married for like 30 years. And at, at a time, they came to a point in their marriage where there was a lot of friction. And there wasn't a lot of speaking life in the home where the wife was building up the husband and encouraging him. It was a lot of tearing down. And it was perfect for the picking because this man was talking to another woman in his work area or whatever and started to develop a relationship. But all this woman did was drip honey. She told him how much she just thought of him, how wonderful he was, such an amazing guy. And he felt good. He felt good. He's like, this woman cares about me. I mean, this is amazing. I don't feel like this with my wife. All she does is tear me down. And what happened? He went off and had an adulterous affair. And what followed, what ensued was hell. Pure hell. Do you understand how these things work? Life and death truly is in the power of the tongue. Do not underestimate it. And the enemy will hit you when you're at your weakest. This is what will happen. Moving on to verse 25. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Unfortunately, this is exactly what's happening to Israel in in the days of Balaam. These women had the ability to do what no one else could do to overpower them. Nobody could bring Israel under a curse. And yet these women went forth and seduced them, deceived them, and they went. Proverbs 7, 1, this gets even better. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live in my law as the apple of your eye. Our eyes are to be affixed on his word on his commandments, and his word is to be in our heart. We're to meditate it when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up. It's to, we're totally to clothe ourselves with it. It's to be constantly playing in our mind. He says, verse 3, Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. Why? Where's the, what, what kind of power do we wield when the Torah, the law of God is in my heart, when I'm meditating and when I'm clinging to it, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Again, she's speaking to him. Now, let me be clear, women, this is not about picking on you because guess what? It doesn't matter. It happens to both parties. There have been men that I have known that created a relationship with a married woman and through their mouth, giving them all this love and all building them up and encouraging, tell them how beautiful they are, how great. When the husband's over here not doing it. And what happens, that whole house crumbles. 
She falls into it. The, 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 the lips drip honey on the front end. And this is what happens. It's absolutely diabolical. And the reason it happens, and I'm telling you this and listen to me, every marriage that is rocky, that is broken, it is because you are not in tune with Yeshua. Your relationship is separated, it's severed. You have blindness. You do not have the word. If we have the word, this is our defense mechanism. The defense against this unbelievable sin that's taking Israel out the defense is clinging on to his commandments. And here's the thing. I've met people that can quote scripture to me 12 ways from Sunday. There's people that remember, memorize literally entire books of the Bible. None of that means anything when you're at war unless you actually believe what this says. And that's the key thing. When you come into those moments, if you don't actually believe that hell is about to follow... The acharit, the end for you is going to be death. If you don't believe that, you're as good as gone. That honey's going to taste good because you're blind. You don't believe in the word of God. And, and every time we get ourselves in trouble in any sin, I'm telling you, it's a faith issue because you actually don't believe. And therefore, your flesh takes over and the rest is history. Verse 6, we read this. For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice, and I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding. Relatively speaking, guess what? The law isn't the apple of his eye. Yeshua is not the Lord of his life. This is where this young man is, which is obviously problematic because he has no defense system. So how's this turn out? Verse 8, passing along the street near the, her corner, he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, and the black and dark of night. Nobody sees. When nobody can see, that's interesting. When Yeshua opens up to the church of Pergamos, he says, I know your works. I know them. Continuing on, verse 10. And there, in the black of night, there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot. Again, we have another saying in our culture, dressed to kill. She is dressed to kill. Women, when you dress provocatively, that, that, there could be nothing more unhealthy. And the messages and the signals that you're going to be sending out, you do not want to dress to kill. And, and, and allure men through the beauty, which we've been warned, don't look at it, stay away from it. But these women of Moab, you better believe they went out dressed to kill so that Israel couldn't stop looking. This is the reality. So she's dressed to kill, but look at what it says next. This is important. Dressed to kill, the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. Now you go to this in the Hebrew, a, a literal translation of this, and this is important, is that she had a guarded heart. You know what that means? It means she's concealing her deception. She's concealing her wickedness, her adulterous ways. She's concealing. It's guarded. That's deception. This is what Israel is dealing with, uh, with, with these women of Moab. Moving on, jumping down to verse 21. With her enticing speech, again, do you see? The, the same broken record playing over and again. Her speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. So here comes the honey. She's pouring it out on this young man. But in verse 22, immediately he went after her, 
as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know. He didn't know that it would cost him his life. Do you think he would have went after her? Had he known the Aharit, the end? Or the Hasu? He would have never done this. The Bible gives you the end. It tells you up front what will happen if you do this, if you engage in this. This is going to be your end. But again, I tell you, with all the immorality that's going on in the churches today, you can't convince me that pastors actually believe what they're reading. You can't convince me that when congregations, it's estimated that there's different estimates, some 60 to 80% of men on a regular basis in church are viewing porn. You will never convince me that they actually believe this. We're dealing with an entire generation that has no faith. Well, that's fascinating because that's why Israel didn't go into the land. The entire generation of Israel was wiped out because of unbelief. So as we look at this in Numbers 25, the people begin to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. There's your dots so you understand what's going on. They came out dressed to kill and they were speaking to them to allure them. And there's more. Verse 2. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Isn't that interesting? What's happening here? They're eating food sacrificed to idols. Isn't that interesting? The very thing at Pergamos, these believers are getting involved in. It's the very thing that Israel got involved in. They got involved with sexual immorality, and now they're eating food offered to idols. Now, make no mistake, that one sin led to the other. The reason they would eat and go to the sacrifices of their God is because they're allured by these women. All they care about is the women. You want me to serve your God? Whatever. They don't even care at that point. This is what happened to Solomon. So eyes on the women. Next thing he's building altars to false gods because they allured him. He was allured. And continuing, and we read the rest of this. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. See, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, forever. That's why we see Yeshua with the sword drawn with the church of Pergamos. He's angry. They're doing exactly what his own people did in the wilderness. Let me ask you, how how do we think this is going to end? What does the Lord do next? Do you know that thousands upon thousands he wiped out? He killed his own people. The very warning Yeshua has given to the church of Pergamos, oh, he will make good on that threat. He's already made good on it before. 24,000 from Israel wiped out. Awful painful. And I I think of this story and it causes you pain just to think what they were going through. And you know what? I think of today. I think of our culture and where it's going. Today, we, by and large, are practicing the same things. Don't think anything but the following. We're going to reap judgment. We're going to reap judgment. There's just all there is to it. And we like to pretend that's not going to happen. The judgment of God is even being poured out as we speak today. We see it in the world. I mean, this is just a reality. And so, one, one other thing. Before, I'm going to jump ahead to verse uh, chapter 31. But before we go there, 
I, I, I want you to see that, you know, what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, the judgment begins at the house of God. Man, is that a true statement? Because here you would think, okay, the Lord saw what the women of Moab did. They were deceitful. Go kill them. First reaction, go kill the culprit. No, that's not what he does. He kills his people. Then he moves to take vengeance against the Midianites. And in the process, interestingly enough, who else got killed? Balaam. And I'm going to say it again. Balaam, the guy who called Yahweh his God, Balaam, the one who God spoke to in night visions and dreams, Balaam, the one who prophesied with the anointing of the Holy Spirit that Israel is blessed, Balaam, the one who said, I confess sin, Balaam, the one who said, your will be done, this one gets wiped out. How did this happen? Numbers chapter 31, verse 15, and Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Unbelievable. The whole reason Balak wanted to call Balaam to come to him to curse Israel and, and to, to do them, inflict them harm, it actually happened. He was the culprit. He showed Balak the king. He showed the women of Moab. This is the only way that you can get to Israel is if you seduce them. And they willingly come out on their own accord, according to their own decision. But you have no power any other way. Unbelievable. So this whole notion, this nonsensical, very unbiblical, and very deceptive teaching that once saved, always saved, that is absolute garbage. You have the ability at any time to walk away from the Lord. And that's why the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, many will depart from the faith. They were in the faith. You can't depart from something you weren't a part of. I mean, Balaam reminds me of a Judas. What did he do? How did this happen with Balaam? Well, the New Testament picks up on this. This is an amazing insight here. 2 Peter 2.15, Peter says, They have forsaken the right way, gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. What did he do? He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, one of the things that Balaam said in his interaction with Balak, it's interesting, he said, Even if Balak were to give me his own house filled with silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. It gives you insight into his little struggle. Balaam was a coveter. He had idolatry, covetousness, and he yearned for the material things of the world. And don't think for a moment, as he's trekking and the Lord sends him on his way and he's going there, don't think he's not wrestling with this in his flesh. He is wrestling with this only to fall to the desires of his flesh and he got wiped out. This is, you know, the wages of sin is death. And Jude says the same thing. He confirms this, which they're pretty much mere replicas of one another. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Balaam sold his soul for the things of the world. And so the entire story is absolutely awful convincing, showing you, but ultimately what I want to, where we need to land here is to understand that 
Balaam was able to accomplish what most of us would understand as being impossible. He was able to do this through sexual immorality, which brings us back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, where the writer says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. There'll be no hope. You know, just go back in the scripture. I want you to understand God's judgments all over the place. Sodom and Gomorrah soaked in sexual sin, totally and utterly destroyed. Remember what the rabbis say. Fascinating statement as they pose this question What sin was it that led to God finally saying, Enough is enough, and I'm going to pour out judgment in the days of Noah? And their response was, Well, It was this, it's when men began to write certificates of marriage with other men. And women began to write certificates of marriage with other women. This immorality. He said, this is what provoked the Lord to come down and to totally destroy the earth. You know, again, going back, Torah, their entire chapters, for example, chapter 18, dedicated to talking about all the various sexually immoral practices that we are prohibited from partaking of. All of them. But it's interesting. As you get towards the closing of chapter 18, we read this. Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. In other words, just go home and read it. And you start looking at all the sexual immorality that's taking place from the incest to uh, incest to uh, homosexuality, to people having relations with animals, absolute perverse stuff, and, and having adulterous affairs. All of these sins are, are there. You can go read them. And that's why God destroyed them. He laid waste to that land. Now, I just ask you, how far are we away from the second coming of Yeshua? How far are we away, even on a global scale, when this entire globe is soaked in sexual morality? We have sex trafficking that cannot even be imagined happening. Pornography everywhere, on every phone. Adulterous relationships, nobody cares about marriage anymore. I mean, actually, there's a trend right now in webs have multiple partners, open marriages. This is insane. We have people having sex with blow-up dolls. That's nuts. That's, that's a total, that's a kind of perversion that only comes through demonic influence. But all these things are happening. And so this is time to get our temples clean in this generation. It's time to get our, our souls right before God. It's time to repent. Amen? So this is, this is an important message for today. We're going to close here.